Our sermon will be taken from Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. This is the word of God. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plan and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plan. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plan for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Thus says the Lord. Thank you, Ross and Chipita, for the announcements. Just two more announcements I wanted to mention and highlight. Um, This next Saturday, in the same room, we're going to have a little seminar. If you guys want to come to it, you guys are welcome to it. And the seminar is going to be on this topic. I didn't know how to, like, describe it, so I just used a really long sentence. Okay, here it is. How to live out my gospel responsibilities in a place where I'm a minority. How to live out my gospel responsibilities in a place where I'm a minority, which in this country we are uh, Christians are, are minorities. And that creates complications of how to live life a little bit more so in countries that maybe Christianity is a majority. So we're going to have a seminar about that. Uh, a guy named Dan Burns, he's a missions pastor from America of a church that um, uh, that that is really involved uh, with us. We're, we're members there when, when Marif and I live in the U.S. He's coming to visit. Uh, just a, a little bit about him. He has a Master's of Divinity from Gordon-Conwell. Um, and he has his PhD in the New Testament from a school called Westminster Seminary in the, in the US, a, a seminary there. Um, and he's also lived and planted multiple churches in Kazakhstan, uh, which is also a place where Chris, Christians are in minority. So he knows and he's equipped to preach on this topic. So if you're interested to want to uh, join us in that, lunch will be provided. It will be in this room from 12 to 2 p.m. And then we can just hang out however long because the room is ours for the day. Uh, but we'll, we'll have lunch here. Lunch will be provided. Just please up front sign up uh, on, on our sign up, <clears throat> sign up sheet up front. Um, and then we'll provide, we'll know how many people to buy lunch for. All right? So please do that. Second one is that we are uh, hoping to partner with a particular orphanage in Jakarta. Uh, their name is Karnakasi, and it's in North Jakarta. And we're going to go there this Tuesday to meet the leaders, to meet the kids, uh, to see how we can best help them. If this is something you're particularly interested in, if you if this is something you feel like the Lord's calling you to be more involved in or a part of, uh, come up to me or to Emily uh, in the back. Um, and she, Can you raise your hand, Emily? Yep, there she is. And she will uh, sign you up, and, and, and we will invite you to come along with us. Tuesday morning, I know you guys work, and this is my job. So Tuesday morning from 10 a.m., um, I'm available, and I hope you are too, um, if you guys can, can come to that and want to come. If not, if you can't come to it, but you still want to be part of it, let us know, and, and we'll surely find other ways in how we can involve you, all right? Great. So today, we're going to continue in our series through the book of Jonah, and we finally come to the last chapter in the whole book, and if you just read the passage today, you're probably a little bit confused because it's a continuation of four other chapters, and don't worry, we'll, we'll try and catch you up, hopefully, in a way um, um, that makes this chapter understandable. And this is our last sermon 
in the series, okay? Because it is in the last chapter. So here, chapter 4, the book of Jonah, we finally see God's final word, God's final lesson to Jonah, to us, given by God to Jonah, to us, in the form of a question, interestingly enough, in verse 11. It's how the book ends. It ends with a question. A question discussed in the previous sermons that tells us what the point of the whole book is. Okay, God asks Jonah in chapter 4, verse 11, and should I not pity Nineveh? Nineveh, as we've studied, is a major city at the time in a country called Assyria. It's one of the major cities there. It actually became the capital of Assyria later on after the days of Jonah. And if you remember the previous weeks, they're evil, sinful people. Assyria was evil, sinful people who colonize and overtake cities and countries in very gruesome ways. And when they had war prisoners or prisoners of war, they would also treat them in very gruesome, inhumane ways. Um, not only is a scene in, in the book of Jonah, God describing them as evil and Jonah describing them as evil, but you also, we also have many historic Assyrian artifacts and literature that tells us the kind of practices they would do to their prisoners of war back in the day, and it was very gruesome. Also, Assyria, the country that Nineveh is in, was the arch enemy of Israel, the country Jonah is in. So essentially, what God is asking Jonah and asking us today through this question is this. What do you think I should do, God speaking, what do you think I should do to sinful people who also happens to be a threat to you? Nineveh were sinful people, and Nineveh was a threat to Jonah and to Israel. That's what, should I have pity on Nineveh? Should we, should God have pity on those out there, hopefully not in here, who are our enemies or who dislike us and might have hurt us in the past or is currently threatening and hurting us? How should we, should we pity them? Should God just punish them? Do they deserve justice is, or, or should, we, should we pity them? Jonah in chapter 1 didn't think God should have pity on them. He did not think God, God should have mercy on them. So we see that he ran away from God's command to preach to Nineveh because he didn't want Nineveh to have the opportunity to even repent and be saved. So he ran away to Tarshish, which is the opposite of Nineveh from where he was, because he thought the his Ninevehs deserved God's justice and wrath. And now in chapter 4, after a whole series of events in chapter 2 and 3, where God gave Jonah mercy and brought Jonah to finally get to a point to preach to Nineveh, finally Nineveh actually repented. What then happened after God gave Nineveh mercy? Was Jonah happy about it? Absolutely not. He was angry. Why? Because he could not believe that God would have mercy to such evil and sinful people. Why is it so hard for Jonah, or for us oftentimes, to give mercy to those who we feel like don't deserve it? And how are we to think of this subject? It's, it's a really important one. It's going to affect your relationships right now, or, or ones in the, in the past that still are ongoing, or even future ones. It's going to affect your sense of joy and your gospel witness. Not only will this help us shape how to biblically navigate through past and current relational hurts, but future hurts as well. And our ability to do this biblically will be very important for our Christian lives and for our joy and peace. So there's three things I want to point out from this last chapter of Jonah. One, Jonah's world of callous justice. Two, God's world of unbound mercy. And three, the price God paid for such a world. Jonah's world of callous justice, God's world of unbound mercy, and the price God paid for such a world. But before we enter, uh, I invite you to join me in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word, and I pray that if there's anything I say that is not in accordance um, from this passage, I pray that you would have mercy on all of us, and you would reveal to us um, through your word um, 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 what is it you want us to say? But Lord, we know that you are pleased uh, as, as we study this and learn about this as imperfectly as it may be. And we are relying upon your grace to not only help us in our minds, but also in our hearts, that your word may impact our whole person and we may come back and worship to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, point number one, Jonah's world of callous justice. Now, why is this so hard? 
for us to extend mercy to those who we don't feel like deserve mercy. Even though at times we know, often like Jonah, that we're supposed to do it and that God actually wants us to do it. Well, there's a few reasons throughout the book of why God tells us it's hard to do so, and we'll get to that later. But for now, let's see why from chapter 4 it was hard for Jonah to do this. Let's, let's first look at Jonah's bad attitude. When God saved Nineveh, this is how Jonah responded, verses 1 to 3. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you, were, you are a, God, a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. A reminder here in chapter 1, God told Jonah to preach to Nineveh. He didn't want to because he did not think the Ninevites deserved mercy. So he ran away on a boat to Tarshish, which is the opposite of where Nineveh is at. And finally, after God saved Jonah from the, the, the sinful uh, uh, rebellion he was in, out of mercy, by the way, Jonah did not deserve it, but God still saved Jonah out of mercy. Finally, Jonah arrived in Nineveh. In chapter 3, he preached to Nineveh, and God used Jonah's preaching to save Nineveh. And now Nineveh saved, he's protesting. I knew it. I knew you were going to save them. That's why I ran away in the first place, because I knew this was going to happen. I didn't want this to happen. What was Jonah so mad about? <laughs> Why was Jonah so upset that God was merciful to Nineveh? Was he upset that God is a merciful God? No. He, he knew God was a merciful God. Look again at, at verse 2. O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That, that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding and steadfast and relenting in disaster. He knew this was who God is. He was gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He just didn't want God to be those things to Nineveh. We see this pattern throughout the whole book. In chapter 2, when God gave Jonah mercy after saving him from the disaster he was in because of his sin, remember the miraculous act that God did in chapter 2? What was Jonah's response when God gave him mercy? Oh, thank you, God. I praise you, God, that you are gracious and merciful to me. In chapter 4 today, when God was merciful and gave Jonah a plant to shade him from the heat, despite of Jonah's bad attitude to God, he gave God the silent treatment in verse 5. God asked him a question, he just walked away. You don't even do that to your parents. Despite of his bad attitude, God had mercy on him, shaded him. What was Jonah's response to God's mercy then? Exceedingly glad, verse 6 says, because of the plant. He's fine with God being gracious. He's just not okay with God being gracious to the people. He doesn't think God can be gracious too. And plus, you know what's interesting? God's character Jonah described in verse 2, gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding, steadfast, all all those things. You see it throughout the Old Testament. You see God being these very things to Israel, the country that Jonah belonged to. Every time they sinned, God says he's these things to them. Or they're reminded that God are these things. Exodus 34, right after Israel sinned and worshipped the false calf, right, the golden calf, they fell into sin. What happened in verse 6 to 7? The Lord passed before him, before Moses, and proclaimed what? This is what we read in our call to worship. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. The same exact characters we see Jonah saying in verse 2 forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin. And God had mercy to Israel. In Joel chapter 2, verse 13, you see the same characters of God repeated again. When Israel was in a state of sin, the prophet said, Return to the Lord your God, for he is what? Gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents from disaster. The same exact characters you see in verse 2. Jonah knew this is who God is, merciful, gracious, abounding in steadfast love. He had no problem when God were those things to Israel. He had no problem that God became those things to him. But when the recipients were Nineveh, all of a sudden it was a problem. All of a sudden it wasn't okay. And he became angry at God to where he would rather die than live in such a world. You see, Jonah wasn't upset that God was gracious or merciful. He was just upset with God being gracious and merciful to some people. Why? 
See, Jonah had a system. He had a system of determining who deserves mercy and who doesn't deserve mercy. If he felt like God was merciful to those who he thinks deserves mercy, all is well. But when God gives mercy to those he thinks don't deserve mercy, then he throws a hissy fit. Why? Because most likely Jonah thought, yes, Israel is sinful. I get that. We see that throughout the Old Testament. Yes, I'm sinful. Just look at my attitude in chapter 1 and look at me now. I guess I'm, I know I'm sinful. We're not perfect. But Nineveh, oh, Nineveh, they're on a whole other level of sinfulness. They're beyond mercy. We're not that sinful, so we kind of still deserve mercy. They're really, really, really sinful, so they don't deserve mercy. So Jonah concluded, this is his system. Jonah concluded some deserved, some didn't. And some of us today, I don't know, might also have some sort of system we work with. We, we have a line that we've drawn, so to speak, to determine that if someone crosses this line, they no longer deserve mercy. I do. <laughs> and Jonah held on dearly to this system. He would not let it go. And when God extended mercy to Nineveh, you know what it did? It shattered Jonah's system. It destroyed this world he thought he was in. Because now his line meant nothing. A world of callous justice is what Jonah wanted. Callous, the word callous is, you know when you play guitar or tennis, you, your skin kind of starts to die a little bit and it kind of becomes callous, like you can't feel it. Jonah wanted to live in a world of callous justice. Only those who deserve to get mercy get mercy, and those who don't deserve to get mercy don't get mercy. Why such a world so dear to Jonah? Why, why does he want the system to work so much to where he would rather die than not have the system? Which is what he said to God in verse 1. Take my life. If this is the world I'm living in, take my life now. For two reasons. One, Jonah thinks this world will protect him from hurt. Two, Jonah thinks this world will help him, help him find peace. This world of callous justice will protect Jonah, he thought, would protect him from hurt and help him find peace. So let's just briefly go through them. The first one, because I suspect some of these reasons might be the same reasons why we draw the line and we have our own systems. First, Jonah, and perhaps we, often think that a world of callous justice will protect us from hurt. How so? Isn't it scary to live in a world where even really bad sinners are forgiven and really bad sinners deserve mercy? Right? If, if really bad sinners deserve mercy, what's going to stop them from being sinful and hurting us? That's kind of scary to live in a world where really bad sinful people aren't punished and are able to hurt us. Jonah wanted instead a world where the really bad sinners are punished because he believes that a proper administration of punishment and reward is what will reduce sinful acts and therefore protect him. Let me repeat that. A world of callous justice is a system that Jonah thinks will protect him because he believes a proper administration of punishment and reward. If you're bad, you're punished. If you're good, you're rewarded. That system is what will reduce sinful acts because then people would want to get rewarded and not get punished, right? And when people do that, they'll be less sinful and they'll hurt him less. But this isn't really a good solution. Why? Okay, Im imagine that world where everyone has proper social manners because they don't want to get punished and because they want a reward. If, if that's the primary motivation. Yes, in the surface, it might look cordial, and tidy, but if the primary rule for social cordiality or for social kindness is motivated by the threat of punishment or a promise of reward, at best, if that's the primary motivation, at best, this is best case scenario, it'll create a bunch of people who smile to each other, yes, but not because they truly care for each other, not because of true empathy and compassion and love and affection and relationship, but because they don't want to get punished and because they want a reward. If that's the primary motive, at best it's tidy and neat, but fake and dry and meaningless. And we know that's not the world our hearts long for. 
We want something more than that. We want to love others and truly be loved with affection and compassion and empathy. Not just because of rules. We want real relationships, real affections, not smiles driven by self-serving motives. That world, that best case scenario, doesn't really work. Second, Jonah thinks not only this world of callous justice will protect him, where it actually robs him from two relationships. Second, Jonah, and perhaps we, often think a world of callous justice will give us peace of heart. Here's what I mean. It's scary, isn't it, to live in a world where really, really bad sinners are forgiven? Why? Because in that world, I might not always get the opportunity to have my anger soothed by seeing them punished from their crimes. Right? There's this, there, we all know how this feels. There's a sense of peace. There's a sense of, uh, when people who hurt us get what they deserve. Right? There's, there's that, I don't know what the English is, the Indonesian, and I'm going to just use the Indonesian from now on because I, I don't know what the English is really, but it's palampiasan. Right? It's a sense of like, oh, yes, like they got what they deserve. And we find peace in that. And I think sometimes, yeah, we do find peace when justice is served. But if this is the primary and ultimate motive for social kindness and for your peace, it really won't work either. Because this sense of peace will only feel momentary. Right? It'll feel momentary. Let, let's, take best, let's talk best case scenario again. Somebody wrongs you, somebody hurts you, they did something wrong and bad and sinful. And they get punished for it. They get what they deserve. Ah, we feel plampiasan, right? And for how long? Until the next person wrongs you. Until the next person hurts you. Then what is your heart going to demand for again? More plampiasan. And then somebody else, next person hurts you. What is your heart going to... Your peace will be momentary. It'll, you'll be waiting for the next time you pay them for their sins. It doesn't really work. At best, it'll give spurts of momentary peace in between plampiasans. <laughs> I don't know if I can do Indonesian in plural in English, but... See, Jonah thought a world of callous justice will protect him from pain because it'll discourage people from sinning and it'll give him peace because it'll allow him to plampiasan. But as we've seen, it really gives him neither. And if the prime motivation for social kindness is based on callous justice, or in other words, if the motivation for social kindness is based on a system of punishment and reward, at best, it creates a seemingly tidy world, but in actuality is dry and fake, with momentary spurts of peace in between plampiasans. That, that's best case scenario. But nevertheless, Jonah thought this is the world that will protect him. This is the world and where he can find peace. And he wanted to keep this world at any cost. And when God saved Nineveh, that system was shattered. And he would rather die than not live in such a world. He got angry. No way. I'd rather die. Take my life now. I'd rather die than live in this world where God would have mercy on people as bad as Nineveh who don't deserve mercy. Which leads us to our second point. God's world of unbound mercy. Okay. See, unless Jonah, unless Jonah saw the futility in his world of callous justice, he will never be able to find true joy from relationships because it'll be dry and meaningless at best. And he'll never find true consistent peace because he'll always be waiting for that next time of plampiasan. Right? So God wanted him to see that and taught him a lesson. Actually, interesting side note. When someone is angry, it's always good to try and see what's behind the anger. Okay? God didn't say, stop it. Stop being angry. Being angry is a sin. That's not what he said. He was kind. He was gentle. He was merciful to Jonah. And he engaged in dialogue to see what's actually behind the anger. When somebody's angry, they're trying to protect something. They're sad about something. The anger is just what they present to you. What's behind it? There's something more to it. So God brought Jonah through a series of events and engaged in dialogue. Not because God needed to know what it was. God knew what it was. But so that Jonah saw what it was. And by doing so, hopefully would drive him to God's world of unbound mercy. 
instead of sticking fast to his. Okay. For Jonah, his anger was protecting a sense of security and peace that he mistakenly believed his world of callous justice would provide. His anger hid the sadness he felt and the fear he felt, and he, 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 he portrayed his anger, and God wanted him to see what was behind it. So, what did God do? In verses 6 to 8, God turned up the heat in Jonah's life, just like he often does in our lives when he's trying to tell us something. Verse 6 to 8, three things happened. God appointed a plant to shade Jonah. Oh, how nice of him. Then he appointed a worm to eat the plant and take it away. What? And then he pointed an east wind to increase the temperature that was making Jonah mad at the first place. And, and now Jonah's like, what are you doing? This is just, why, this is confusing. <laughs> What's with all this? And all this caused Jonah to get upset. Why was he upset? Verse 10 says, Jonah, this is hilarious. Jonah pitied the plant that God killed. That's what verse 10 said. Do you do, you do well to pity a plant? Really? You'd pity a, a plant? Like one plant. Like you're, you feel bad about that plant. You're mad because of the death of a plant. <laughs> Is that what you're really mad about? You're saying, Jonah, it's okay for me to have mercy. It, it's okay for me to have mercy on Israel. You're saying, Jonah, it's okay for me to have mercy on you. It's okay, and I should have mercy on a plant. Though all those things somehow deserve mercy but it's not okay for me to have pity on Nineveh? A party whom, if were to receive mercy, does not belong to Jonah's benefit. You see, everything that Jonah thought deserved mercy somehow benefited him, himself, his country, and this plant. But when God gave mercy to Nineveh, that's not a party that benefited him. It'd actually be worse on Jonah that Nineveh survived because they're enemies. What, what is God trying to do? God's trying to show Jonah that his so-called objective system of who deserves mercy and who doesn't deserve mercy, of who deserves pity and who doesn't deserve to be pitied, is actually not objective at all. It's very subjective. You were okay with me having mercy on Israel throughout history. That's no problem. You're okay with me giving you mercy from the storm in chapter 1 and 2. That's no problem. You're okay with me giving you mercy through a plant. That's no problem. But you're upset when I gave mercy to Nineveh? Because you think Nineveh doesn't objectively deserve to be pitied? How convenient that your enemies aren't worthy to be pitied. You're upset that I decided to kill the plant because somehow you thought the plant deserved to be pitied? How, how convenient that the plant which give you shade, you felt pity for. Do you not see how your objective rule of who deserves mercy and who doesn't is actually very subjective? And this, and this world that seems to be ruled by its objective sense of justice is not at all ruled by it. That's what God's trying to enter into with Jonah in his last conversation, in his last question. And that's how the book ends. Let, let's read it. Don't miss it. Verses 10 to 11. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not have pity? Uh, should, should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? God is saying, Jonah, you withhold pity from Nineveh and you act like you're withholding pity from them because you are forced to do so by this objective standard of justice, of who deserves mercy and who doesn't deserve mercy. It's not objective at all. You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow. You say this plant that you did not create deserves pity from you, but 120,000 people that I created does not deserve pity from me? How is that objective? By the way, this plant came into being in one night and perished in a night. You, you say that this plant that you've been exposed to or have a relationship with for one day deserves to be pitied? And 120,000 people that I've been with since they were born, I can't have pity on them? How is that objective? Well, because the plant never killed anybody, God. The plant was innocent. The plant wasn't like Nineveh, like these evil people. Yeah, but they don't know their left hand from their right. 
God says in verse 11. They're ignorant. You don't have the knowledge I have, Jonah. Ever since they were born, ever since they were babies, they were trained to be war tools of the warlords of Assyria. (laughs) They don't know any better. They've never lived any other life. You don't know half the abuse of what they've gone through. They've known no other way of life. There's a story of children, child soldiers in North Africa. You probably have heard this. But the way that militia takes people and brainwashes soldiers for themselves is they tell the kids, they, they raid, the, they raid the, um, uh, uh, the villages they're in, and they tell the kids to kill their own parents. Because when they do that, their brain is washed, and they realize there's no going back for me. And all I have left is to be part of this militia. That's just one of the things they do. What Nineveh went through is probably worse than that. I don't know. They don't know their left hand from their right. And you're saying I can't have pity on them? Do you not see how subjective your rule is about who deserves mercy and who doesn't? You have the system that seems to be ruled by objective justice. It's not. It's very subjective. Everyone who deserves mercy benefits you, and everybody who doesn't doesn't benefit you. This is This is... See, this is where God's going with this final question to Jonah. And the the, the book ends here, okay? What is God saying? God's saying this really objective thing, system you have in mind is not at all objective. And you, all you want to do with this system is protect yourself from pain and have an excuse for palampiasan. It's very subjective. It's very self-serving. So what is God saying? Is God saying that uh, 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 the Ninevites of the world, is he saying that those people who hurt us or is currently hurting us or will hurt us in the future, is God saying that um, those people don't know what they're doing and those people have been through a rough childhood and didn't have good parenting so they don't know their left hand from their right and because of that they deserve mercy or, or I created them and I really love them so they, they deserve mercy? Is, God, is that what God's saying? No, not at all. That's not what God's saying. Stick with me. God didn't say those things to make excuses for Nineveh. He didn't say those things to say, oh, they're abused when they're younger, so when they make mistakes, when they're adults, you know, they deserve mercy. No, 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 no. Don't miss the point. That wasn't God's point. All God was trying to do is to tell Jonah the system he created is subjective. It's self-serving. And, and Jonah, listen, Jonah needs to stop blaming the sense of objective justice as the reason of why he's withholding mercy from those he withholds it from. He needs to stop blaming this objective sense of justice. He needs to realize he's doing it. Stick with me. We're getting close. So, the whole point of the book. If Jonah's objective justice is not the proper system, what is the proper system, God? How do I know who deserves mercy and who doesn't deserve mercy? How bad of a sinner must you be to get to a point where you no longer deserve mercy? Or how little of a sinner must you be to still deserve mercy? If, God, if, if Jonah's system didn't work, what is the proper system? Let's, let's take a second to think about the people in our lives that we are right now currently withholding mercy from because we think they don't deserve it. One of the reasons why we're withholding mercy might be because we have our own systems of who we think deserves and who we think doesn't. And if Jonah's system is wrong, God, I'm here. Tell me I'm open to your system. How can I know who deserves and who doesn't? Here's what God's trying to say to Jonah, to us. God is trying to say, the fact that you're asking that question was wrong to begin with. It's a wrong question to start off with. There is no proper system to determine who deserves mercy and who doesn't deserve mercy. Why? Because mercy, by definition, is always undeserved. It's the wrong question to ask. What is the system, God? Where's the line? Why you bother asking me about who deserves mercy and who doesn't? Everybody that deserves mercy, by definition, don't deserve it. That's the whole point of the book to try and come up with a system 
an objective system of determining how sinful someone must be to deserve mercy or not deserve mercy is a useless exercise. You're just going to cut up subjectively deciding for yourself what system works best for you and your self-interest. It's useless to think about whether or not this person deserves mercy because if you give mercy to somebody because they deserve it, it's no longer mercy, it's justice. (laughs) Mercy is not justice. Mercy is mercy. Mercy, by definition, can only be administered to those who do not deserve it. That's why it's unbound. You see, there's no objective sense of justice that forces you to withhold mercy from someone. You can't say, well, that's too bad of a sin. Well, I can't give you mercy now. That'd be unjust to do so. Of course it's unjust. It's mercy. They don't deserve it. Now, don't get me wrong. Don't hear me saying, because of this, you must, at this very second, forgive and have mercy to all those people who's wronged you, like right now. No, I'm not saying that. I understand. There are hurts so deep that just takes time. Appropriately so. There are wrongs so bad that just takes a minute. (laughs) That's okay. I know it's hard. And after you've had adequate time to forgiving them, you maybe still not want to forgive them. I get it. I get it. If you don't, I, I have people I withhold mercy from. I'm not just saying that because it's a good preaching tool to empathize with your congregation. No. Like, I literally have names and faces in my head right now of people I am withholding mercy to that I shouldn't be. But it's just so hard. I know. It's so hard to do that. I'm not saying you have to you have to do it now. God, what God is saying to sinful people like me who withhold mercy from people, what he's saying is not that I have to do it right now. If I do, that's great, but that's not his point. His point is no matter how long you stay in it, you cannot blame that timeline on justice. You can't blame it on justice, you see. Justice isn't tying my hands behind my back saying, oh, well, because of justice, I can't give you mercy. I I can't do anything. No, no. (laughs) Mercy has nothing to do with that. Mercy's mercy. So who's tying my hands behind my back? I am. I am. I'm not saying that's bad to do so. Just realize that. I'm not saying you have to forgive them now. Just realize that. You are tying your hands behind back. It's not justice's decision. It's your decision. It's my decision. Mercy is not bound by justice. Take as long as you need. I'm not trying to dictate. I'm not trying to shortcut the process. Take as long as you need. Often it's very good to take time. And it's, 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 we don't take enough time sometimes. And we end up fake forgiving people. I'm not saying that. Take as much time as you need. But just know justice is not the one setting the timeline. You are. I am. Look, I promise, I'm just as annoyed at the sermon as you are. <laughs> I am. It just, it's not fun to have people say these things about and, and seemingly force us to do things that our heart might not be ready yet. I am. Because it stinks. It does. These relationships, these wrongs, these hurts might be so real and might be so deep. I mean, they can come from coworkers and friends, maybe or exes, or perhaps even deeper when it comes from families, or maybe even your own spouse. How in the world can I find the power to live in God's world of unbound mercy? Let's finish at our last third point. Point three, the price God paid for such a world. Jonah was right. This world of unbound mercy actually does increase the risk of getting hurt. (laughs) And it, it does take away the opportunities for you to plampiasan. It does. Why? Because right now we don't live in an ideal world. We live in a broken world, a broken and sinful world with broken and sinful people like us and everybody else, and it's unsecure. We hurt each other intentionally and unintentionally. So how are we to live in this idealistic world God has in mind, but yet at the, at the same time be realistic that the world is broken? It's a scary and risky place. Like, like Jonah Many of us might not even want to live in it. (laughs) 
We'd rather have a world of our own design and rather die than live in his world. Take me now. And we might say, well, it's easy for God to command that. He's not here with us now. He's not at risk of being hurt. He, he doesn't have to do the hard work of being patient and withholding his rights for Palampiasan. He's unaffected by all this. Slow down. Is he not? We often forget how involved God emotionally is to his creatures. Look again. Notice how emotionally attached God was to Nineveh in verses 10 to 11. He listed out all these things to Jonah of why he would be prone to loving them. I created them. Of course I love them. I've been with them their whole lives. Of course I'm attached to them. I've seen how they've been abused for generations. They don't know their right hand from their left. God felt attachment to Nineveh. Now, if God felt this much attachment to the likes of Nineveh, those sinful people, how much more do you think God's attached to the people Nineveh destroyed? How, how much in love is God with them? Nineveh, remember, they were very evil people. In chapter 1, we saw how gruesome their practices were to their prisoners of war and the people that they invaded. Did God not love these people that Nineveh hurt? Of course he did as well. And we see that Nineveh's pillage and torture of all these villages and cities involved the, tor the torture of children. We see that from their historical literature and artifacts. Does God not care for these children? Is he unaffected by what they've done? Don't think for a second he's detached from all this. The level of forbearance he must have agonized over, our human minds would burst if we even had one tiny drop of it. He's not unattached. You think it was easy for God to have mercy, to withhold his right of Palampiasan, to see all these things happen? We have no idea. And you know who Nineveh destroyed in 722 BC? Israel. They overtook Israel. God's own people in the Old Testament, who God says he loves like a nursing mother cares for a child, who, says, who God loves like an eagle protecting her children under her wings, Deuteronomy 32 says in Isaiah 49. He was upset, to say the least. So how can God, who is also affected like us, have pity on the likes of Nineveh? Where did all that wrath go? Friends, why do you think Jesus struggled to drink the full cup of God's wrath before he went to the cross? When he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane? He prayed before he was crucified, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, okay, your will be done. Where do you think all that wrath went? Do not take it lightly. The wrath of God that made even our Lord and Savior tremble. Where did it go? Where did the fullness of God's wrath go? All the justice of the sinful people that's been hurt, all the, all the anger, all of that was drank by Jesus when? when he climbed on that cross. And he took, the Bible says, the full wrath of God. <laughs> Do not take that lightly. Why? So that God can give us undeserving sinners mercy because justice had been paid. This was the cost God paid to allow a world of unbound mercy. Justice has been served and paid for. By who? By himself. He now is free to extend mercy to whomever he wants. And let us never forget, it was not only Nineveh's sin that God had to forbear. It was yours and mine. It was our sin. He forbears and he's patient with. And if justice was to be served, I'd be doomed. But he did not use justice as an excuse to withhold mercy from us. He climbed on that cross. He paid for the justice we deserved so that we and he can now extend mercy to undeserving people who has hurt him and who hurts us. See, we like Jonah often want to live in a world of callous justice because we think it protects us from sinful acts and it gives us momentary peace from Blampiasa. It doesn't. At best, it creates a seemingly tidy world that's dry and fake with momentary spurts of peace in between Blampiasans. That's at best. What God's gospel requires is a greater world. When people receive Christ, what does the scripture say increasingly happens to them? They increasingly become more like Christ. They increasingly love their brothers more like 
Christ. They increasingly love, it, love God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love their neighbors like themselves. These are the things that happen when somebody comes to Christ. A world filled with those people, that's what's going to protect you without killing relationship, without it being motivated by punishment or reward. And also through Christ, we can find peace in knowing that justice for sinners will be paid. It's not up to your palampiasan. Justice will be paid. Let me go back to chapter 3 real quick. I, I promise we're almost over. Chapter 3, for you that miss it, there, there's a word, there's a word, hapak, a Hebrew word, hapak, that's used in chapter 3. And we, we talked about last week how this word can be used in two ways. In the Old Testament, it's used two ways. One, hapak can be used as overturned, as in when a kingdom is overturned and destroyed. Or hapak can be used in a positive sense, where somebody's turned over to God, like repenting, turned over to God. So it can be used in destroyed or saved. Hapak. And in, in chapter 3, God told Jonah to say, tell Nineveh what? In 40 days, Nineveh will be hapak. Either destroyed or turned over. Either, either destroyed, overturned, or repent, turned over. See, through Christ, guys, justice will be served. It's not up to your plampiasa. Have peace that justice will be served. Either sinners turn over to Christ and, and justice being paid on the cross for their sins has been taken upon Christ, who bears it, who is offered it, this is justice, or hopefully it's not the option they choose, but they might reject this self-sacrificial mercy offered by Christ. They may not, not want to turn to Christ and at the end be overturned, which is justice as well. Either way, Justice will be served. It's not our business to decide who deserves justice and who doesn't. We're sinners by grace, too. We find not peace in momentary palampiasan, but in trusting God that one way or the other, justice will be paid. Romans 12, 17 19. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay. It is not our place to play God. Come up with our own system of who deserves mercy and who doesn't. It's our job to extend mercy to those sinners who have hurt us. Sinners like us, saved by grace. Okay, let's, let's end here. I promise, we're almost done. Okay, summary of the whole book really briefly. Let's compile it all here, okay? And it's not going to... Do it justice. If you want to look, if you want to hear the sermons, go to SoundCloud. But, but cha chapter one, okay, this is what God's saying. Chapter one, God doesn't say to Jonah, okay, this is what we learned from mercy. God doesn't say to Jonah, you have to excuse Nineveh's sin. That's not what God's saying. Remember, God's not saying excuse their evil. No, they're evil people. But offer them mercy, all the while knowing that they're sinful. God did not tell Jonah that he has to be best friends with them. He didn't tell Jonah to be best friends with Nineveh. All he said is be merciful to them. You don't have to be best friends to people who've hurt you. That's not what God asks. He's saying have mercy for them. Don't wish them to perish. Wish the best for them. That's what he requires. Okay? Chapter 2. God called Jonah to do this because he's a sinner too who rebelled against God and he doesn't deserve God's mercy but yet received it. Chapter 3. Often our hearts don't want to give mercy and it feels fake to do it when we don't want to do it. Remember that whole thing we talked about last week? If you don't want to do it, it feels fake to do it. No, you don't have to be fake. Just do it and be honest that it's hard. A lot of us don't want to do something that we really don't feel like doing because if we do something that we don't feel like doing, we feel like it's not authentic and our culture worships authenticism, authenticity. The answer to authenticity isn't disobeying God when you don't feel like it. The answer is obeying God and be honest that you don't want to do it. <laughs> That's authentic. That's what Jonah did in chapter 3. Trust him more than our subjective, imperfect, finite minds and fluctuating emotions. Last one, chapter 4, hits, hits the root of it all, that we can't blame anything else as a primary reason of why we withhold mercy. Chapter 1, I don't want to justify their sin. Don't. I never asked you to justify their sin. I feel like I can't be best friends with them. Don't. I never asked you to be best friends with them. I just asked you to give them mercy. No one's asking you to be best friends or justify their evil. No. Well, excuse me, chapter 3, I don't want to fake it, you know. I don't, I don't want to do this if I don't really feel like doing it. Don't fake it. Just do it and be honest that it's hard. <laughs> no one's asking you to fake it. Excuses from chapter 4, but it's just not fair. You know, it's just not, it's not fair. I know it's not fair. It's mercy. 
he's, he's, he's killing every single excuse we can use of something else that's, that's somehow prohibiting us from giving mercy. They're all gone. And the only one determining the timeline is you and me. Take as much time as you need. Don't, you don't have to extend mercy now. I'm not, I'm not saying that sarcastically. I, really, I, I actually do really mean it. Like, take as much time as you need. But just so you know, you have the final say of when it ends. You're not bound to anything else. It's your call. And it's hard. It's hard to live like this, to extend mercy and be self-analytical of why we're holding on to it. But friends, that's what the cross requires from those who embrace it. As scary as it may be to live with unbound mercy in a world of callous justice, let those who claim his name do so and live it out. Because by doing so, we'll grow in wisdom and how to navigate through relationships. He'll bring us true joy and peace that we long for. And also by doing so, you're testifying to his great salvation. Let me end with the verse, John 13, 34, 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Let's pray. Father, what a convicting passage this was. What a convicting book this was. That you've you've stripped away every excuse we have of why we don't want to forgive other people. You've taken away every, every reason that are, that's seemingly objective of why our hands are, quote-unquote, tied behind our backs. They're not. The only reason why we withhold it is because we're withholding it. Lord, and I pray that you give us the wisdom and understanding of how to navigate through these complicated hurts and pains that's probably happened in our lives and will continue to happen more in the future, that we will grow as those who find continual peace in the fact that we know justice is your business, not ours. And also in the fact that true relationships will be had if we live in a world that is not callously just. And Father, through that, I pray that you use our actions to portray to the world your great salvation, that when they see Christians relate to one another and relate to sinful people, they look at that and they say, there is something strange about this. There is something foreign about this. The world doesn't work this way. What about them gives them the strength? And let that point them to the cross and to the gospel to know that we are sinners saved by grace as well. And Lord, now as we sing of your great mercy and as we sing of your gospel, remind us of this, secure our hearts in who we are in you and that we know no matter how hard this is for us, you love us still and you you, you have mercy upon us still even if we still disobey you in our giving of mercy in the future. Thank you for your cross that we may behold and approach your throne boldly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Stand to our feet. within a word I look at
praise you and hallelujah we sing that you have given us and imparted to us this great salvation that we may now live in this world as those with unbound mercy even though this world operates in a system of callous justice let this represent your gospel and make your majesty more preeminent in the city <coughs> jesus name we pray amen friends uh Take a CBR as you leave. It'll help you um, uh, get in the Word, hopefully, and guide you through that. I know the Bible can be intimidating, but that can break up the schedules for you, and hopefully that'll be good. And if you want to be part of <clears throat> our mercy ministry this Tuesday, let us know, or our mercy ministry at all. Let me or Emily know, and we'll, we'll, we'll sign you up for that, all right? And as we go on this week, tomorrow, Monday, you're going to see these people again that you probably thought about today, these names, these faces that came to mind. Just remember, however long it takes you, it is on you, but God is merciful, and God will patiently walk with you as he did with Jonah through it all, because he loves you, because he's given you Christ, and that you are blameless in him. So remind yourself of that gospel and live with unbound mercy. <clears throat> Receive now a benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. Lord, lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Now go in his peace. Praise. Praise.